0: It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 264 for October 16th, 2011, recorded October 14th. Occasionally, I recommend TrueCrypt an open-source file and disk encryption application. The trouble with TrueCrypt, though, is that it comes with a detailed instruction file. And I do mean detailed. Fortunately, there's a beginner's tutorial, but even that can be a bit daunting. So I set out to create my own instructions that cover just the essential steps. If you are a spy or a terrorist, well, you're beyond what these instructions will do for you. If you understand the difference between AES, Serpent, and TwoFish encryption, or you understand why plausible deniability might be important if you have hidden some files, then you don't need these simple instructions. These instructions are for people who want to protect files on a disk drive or a thumb drive in case the device is stolen. Talk of encryption causes a lot of people's eyes to just glaze over, but this is an important topic. If there's any information on your computer that you wouldn't want to be available to just anybody who steals your computer, stick with me for a little bit and see how easy it is to set this up. You would of course start by downloading and installing TrueCrypt. You'll find a link to the TrueCrypt download site on the TechBiter Worldwide website. When you've done that, start the program. And as you perform the following steps, you will of course want to have the TechBiter Worldwide website open and up on your screen because I'll show you, step-by-step, what you'll see and tell you what to do. You'll start with a screen that shows a list of available drive letters on your system. This list will vary from what you see on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It'll probably start with drive E or drive F, and will continue all the way through drive Z. You don't see all of those on my system, because I have some of the other drives defined. Ignore all that for now, because all you want to do now is create a TrueCrypt virtual drive. you find a button called Create Volume. Click that. What you'll be doing here is creating a file that, when the file is activated by TrueCrypt, will appear to be a disk drive on your computer, and everything in the file will be encrypted. So you want to create an encrypted file container that's already going to be selected. Just click Next. On the next page, you'll see Standard TrueCrypt Volume. That will already be selected, so click Next. You might be inclined to click Select File on the next screen, but I recommend that you don't. Instead, just type an actual drive letter and the name of the file that you want to create. For example, I chose to place my TrueCrypt file on drive F. And I decided to name it "Small Test Drive" with no spaces. The important point is this: you can name the file anything you want, absolutely anything. Name it "Really Boring Memo.doc." That's fine. Name it "Last Tango in 4 Name it "US9RHA-GUWEW.S21." Doesn't matter. Just call the file. Something. And then click Next. The Encryption Options page will have AES and RIPEMD 160 selected by default. If you're a spy or a terrorist and you want something other than that, you'll know what you want and why. Otherwise, just click Next. Now you need to decide how large you want the virtual drive to be. Type a number and select either kilobytes, megabytes, or gigabytes. Most people will probably want something in the range of 50 to 100 megabytes, but this depends on how much secret stuff you have to store. After you set the size here, click Next. This step is even more important than everything that's come before. You need to create a password. If you forget the password, there is no way to recover it, and all of your secret files will be lost. Period. End of sad story. So choose a password you will be able to remember. The password you choose will probably be short enough that TrueCrypt will warn you about it. And you can probably ignore that warning. Decide whether you want to format the virtual disk drive as file allocation table FAT, which is typically FAT16 or FAT32, or if you want an NTFS volume. If you're not sure which to choose, and the virtual drive is relatively small, say under 100 megabytes or so, then choose FAT. Otherwise, choose NTFS. Next, just sit at your computer and move the mouse randomly for about 30 seconds or so. What you're doing here is generating a better random seed number. Once you've finished, click Format. Depending on the size of the virtual drive you're creating, the formatting process will take just a few seconds, or if it's a really big file, several hours. When the process is complete, click OK. And that's pretty much it your TrueCrypt drive is now completed. You won't see it on the computer yet because it isn't mounted. You probably do want to use the encrypted drive, so open the TrueCrypt control panel again and click select file over on the right hand side of the panel. Navigate to the new file you created or just type the drive letter path and file name if you remember them. Select an available drive letter. This is the drive that the TrueCrypt volume will be, so pick any drive letter, any drive letter that's open, and then click Mount. That's in the lower left-hand corner. TrueCrypt will now ask you for your password. Type that and click OK. Your new drive is now operational. Windows Explorer will show a new local drive with the drive letter you just specified. The drive will be the size you indicated when you created it. So now you can add, edit, or delete files from that new virtual drive, just as if it were a standard drive. On the TechBiter Worldwide website, you'll see that I've copied several secret sound effects files into the drive. When you turn the computer off, the TrueCrypt drive will disappear until you mount it the next time. To make the drive disappear without rebooting the computer, just open the TrueCrypt control panel, select the drive from the list shown, and click Dismount. Should somebody find your TrueCrypt file and open it in a text editor or with some other application, the data will simply be unreadable. You may want to copy your secret files to another computer. Well, that's easy. Just copy the encrypted file to the other computer. If TrueCrypt isn't installed on the other computer, you'll of course need to install it, but once you've done that, using the files on the other computer is just the same as using them on the computer where the TrueCrypt volume was created. And that is the short, easy way to use TrueCrypt. I must be in kind of a security mode this week, because I've been thinking about more options and more reasons for backup. The cost of online backup services and large-capacity USB drives have changed the backup landscape considerably in the past year. So, in this week's program, we'll expand a bit on a previous report about how I back up my primary computer. Some, or all of the techniques that I use, may be applicable for your computer. My mantra is this. Any file that exists in only one location is not backed up. So, if you back up important files to another directory on your computer, you don't have a backup. If you back up important files to a separate hard drive in the computer you don't have a backup. If you backup important files to a USB drive that you store in the same building as the computer, you don't have a backup. I don't believe in trusting a single source of backup, so I use a variety of techniques. Norton Ghost creates a system image and backs up all critical new system files weekly. The drive, currently it's a single 3 terabyte drive, storing these backups is then stored during the week at my office. Carbonite backs up essential data files. The online service doesn't create a system image file, but it does keep all of my Word documents, Excel documents, access databases, digital images, video files, and all of those things, including all the old TechBiter Worldwide programs, on a server in Boston. Restoring all of these files via the internet would be slow, so I consider this to be my second line of defense. Data files are backed up locally with GoodSync. Anything I'm working on is backed up within seconds to a local USB drive. Keep in mind, I said that's not a backup. It's just a quick recovery in case I do something stupid to an existing file. And What this means is I can then attach the USB drives to a notebook computer and continue working as if nothing had happened should something cause the desktop system to crash. So far, I've never lost a file. I have used each of these systems to recover files that were deleted or damaged, and that's my primary message. I have been able to recover lost or damaged files without cost and without a lot of fuss. You may think of your computer as being expensive, but really, it isn't. You might think of the applications that you've purchased to run on your computer as being expensive, but really, they aren't. You might not give much thought at all to the documents you've created, but they are more valuable than the computer or the applications. Oh, and one more thing. For most people, choosing a backup solution such as Carbonite or Norton Ghost is an either-or decision. Depending on how distressed you'd be if a hard drive crash meant that you would have to reinstall the operating system, reinstall all your applications, and then configure all of the applications to your liking, you may want both a disk image, such as that provided by Norton Ghost or Acronis True Image, and off-site file backups. Online backup applications such as Carbonite and synchronizer backup applications such as GoodSync won't backup the operating system. For that, you need an application that creates what's called a disk image. For many years, I used the Acronis product, but it seemed to have some problems backing up my 64-bit Windows system. I gave Norton Ghost a test run and then purchased the product. Although I prefer to use GoodSync for data backups, Norton Ghost is exactly what I need for the system disk. Because my system disk contains three logical drives, CE and W, the disk image backs up all three as a unit. Should the system disk crash, the restoration process would involve installing a new disk drive, booting from a special Norton Ghost recovery DVD, and then restoring from the USB drive that I store at the office. Have I mentioned that I'm really seriously opposed to losing important files? For more than a decade, Apple's operating system upgrades have been positioned as step upgrades, 10.0, 10.1, 10.2, and so on. And they've carried low price tags, some free, some costing just $40 or so. By contrast, Windows upgrades typically cost $100 or more. In reality, these prices are about the same because Apple releases updates much more frequently. But Apple's upgrades are perceived as being less expensive. Now, some commentators are calling for Microsoft to make the forthcoming Windows 8 free. The case being made for this is weak, and it has virtually no chance of being accepted. The operating system business is a big part of Microsoft's profit structure, and it is unlikely that Microsoft would seriously consider the suggestion. Although to jumpstart acceptance, marketers at Microsoft might consider a limited-time offer that would reduce the price considerably. And, of course, there will probably be free upgrades for anybody who buys a Windows 7 system in the 90 days or so before Windows 8 goes on sale. But (laughs) free-for-all? I don't think so. The same author who suggested that the operating system should be free also wants Microsoft to include the Office applications at no additional charge. Build them right into the operating system. So the company should just give away both of its most lucrative products? Not gonna happen. The author then backpedals a bit and says, well, maybe it should just be a slimmed down version of the Office applications. Well, there's a better chance for that. But I still can't see a lot of support inside Redmond to provide for free enough functionality that people might be able to do without the full versions of Word and Excel. I've continued to work with Windows 8 on kind of a casual basis, haven't installed most of the applications I use on the Windows 8 partition, so there's really not a lot I can do there. The applications I have installed, I guess we should probably call them legacy apps now because they're not designed to work in the metro environment, work as they always have, just not in the Metro interface. Earlier, I had said this is an advantage. The Metro interface is designed primarily for phones and tablets. When users need Word, Excel, PowerPoint, Photoshop, or any other standard application, the standard or legacy or Windows 7 interface is better. The fact that Windows 8 can present two very different faces is an advantage, not a problem. And I hope that Microsoft doesn't take the advice of those pundits who tell them that every legacy application must be metroized. Come on, fit the operating environment to the task at hand. When I installed the 64-bit version of Office, the installation appeared to fail, but then when I tried to install the 32-bit system instead, Windows 8 told me the 64-bit version had already been installed. And so it had. The 64-bit version, though, offers few advantages over the 32-bit system, regardless of the operating system. One thing that has impressed me so far is the Windows 8 Developer Preview seems generally to be faster than Windows 7 on equivalent hardware. This is a surprise because the Windows 8 Developer Preview almost certainly contains debugging code, and possibly a lot of it. This retards the operating speed. I haven't installed Windows 8 on a netbook because I want to maintain one machine with a Linux dual-boot partition, but I have seen Windows 8 run on low-power devices, and the performance is surprisingly good. Between the previous Windows 8 report and this one, several Windows 8 updates have arrived automatically. This is a change from the Windows 7 preview. And Microsoft decided to provide regular updates, in part, to test and fine-tune the update delivery system. The next TechBiter Worldwide Windows 8 update is scheduled for the November 13th program. In short circuits, when the book you check out of the library is due, you have a couple of choices. Renew the book if it's not on somebody's wait list, or just keep it an extra day or two and pay the small fine when you return it. With a Kindle library loan, you don't have a choice. When your time is up, the book is simply removed from the Kindle. Or is it? Well, the answer is no, it isn't. But you have to know a trick. I was a few chapters away from finishing a Kindle library book. Amazon sent two warnings prior to the expiration date, So, I set some other things aside and quickly finished the book. But what if I hadn't been able to do that? I tried an experiment. The book was due last Sunday, so I turned off the Kindle's Wi-Fi connection on Saturday. That still left the 3G connection active, but I was fairly sure that Amazon doesn't use that for anything except placing orders. Sunday evening, after the book was due, it was still on my Kindle. It was still there Monday morning. It was still there Monday afternoon. So if I hadn't finished reading the book on time, I could have retained it for a day or two, or more, past the return date. Now you're probably wondering, what if I just want to keep the book indefinitely? Well, sure, you can do that. Just never turn the Wi-Fi back on. Now, that has the unfortunate consequence of turning your free library loan into a $100 book, because then you can't download any more books until you turn the Wi-Fi back on. So, for most people, I suspect this little trick will simply be used occasionally, and in a situation such as the one I've just described. And when you're done reading the book, just turn the Wi-Fi option back on, and poof, the book is gone. A couple of weeks ago, Netflix announced that it planned to retain the Netflix name for streaming video and use a new name, Quickster, Q-W-I-K-S-T-E-R, for DVD fulfillment. The howls of derision were immediate and intense, so intense that Netflix has decided to be just Netflix for streaming and DVD, just like always. But well, except for that 30% or more price increase that preceded the announcement of the new name. That continues to stick. I wonder, though, if Netflix users were set up. Some of the tens of thousands of people who posted angry comments to the Netflix blog following the announcement probably feel vindicated now. Possibly some feel they've won something. But what have they won? Forcing Netflix to change its silly Quickster name back to Netflix? Yeah, you got that all right. But you still have that 30% or more price hike to deal with? Many users dropped either the DVD service or streaming to keep the price in line. Some of us dropped streaming and cut back the number of concurrent DVDs so that we're still paying the same price, or maybe a little less. But this is a lot like what Buddeck has done with his little meat packages. They used to be six ounces, then four. Some are now just two and a half ounces, yet the price is the same. If you charge me the same price and give me less stuff, that's a price increase, even if the actual dollar amount hasn't gone up. But I digress. I said Netflix users might have been set up. Yep. It's one of the older tricks of corporate marketing. Distract the customer. Change the subject. Give the detractors something cheap to sink their teeth into. Something like a silly new name with a goofy spelling. Then announce you're going to change the name back. I thought the new name was a fine example of naming by committee. But maybe it was wrong. Maybe. Maybe. It was a stroke of genius. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.